0: The gospel of Jesus Christ is power, but power is not the gospel. But make no mistake, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that the son of David is no longer dead, is power. It will, it can, it does, it shall change your life and sustain your new life. It shall make you set apart and distinct from the rest of the people of the world who, sadly, will find themselves on a wide road leading to destruction and they will look at you as though you are strange when you don't want to walk that road with them. But the reason you will not want to walk that road with them, the reason that you will stand on the narrow road that leads to salvation is because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of that salvation pulling you away from darkness and into his marvelous light. It is power. It is transformation. It is the renewal of the mind. It is change, and it is all a promise. It is a promise that you now have peace with God. Peace with God. God who is killing us. God who is sending the storms and the whirlwinds and the fires and the earthquakes. God who is giving us over to our sinful condition so that wars and rumors of wars and famines and, and fights and all these things continue to plague mankind. That same God has waved the flag of truce with you, only it's not a white flag, it's his son nailed to a cross. There he has declared peace to you. And that peace actual end of warfare between you and God, peace, is also the power to bring you peace of conscience. Now, in the past, I've preached intentionally, peace is not a feeling, and that's true. It's not something that just is about how you get up your emotions in your belly. But that does not mean that there is not a feeling of peace that comes upon you when you realize that your conscience, which is plagued by your failures and your sins, no longer has to try to prove itself to God, but that God loves you as his own precious son. Now, that peace of conscience, that assurance, that surety is, again, not something you must figure out or figure, Feel in some way it is what he has declared to you. He has promised you peace. Faith alone believes that. Faith alone holds to that over and against the conscience when the conscience accuses and attacks you. And again, that is an experience of peace, but it's not an experience, I should say, that is also an experience of power, but it is not an experience of peace and power that does not involve weakness and struggle at the same time. And that is the mystery of the Christian walk that Paul is really going to begin digging into as we move toward Romans 7 and Romans 8. Today in chapter 5, he's he's not going to be focused so much on your internal battle. He's going to focus on the reason that peace can't be taken away, which is the external battle of what Jesus Christ has done by becoming a new Adam, a new head of creation, a new first man. He's going to emphasize that point in the middle of chapter 5 after he insists to you That you have indeed been justified. You remember we left off without last week. That you have been justified, declared innocent, vindicated, insisted upon as no longer guilty by God simply because that's how good God is. As you heard it read a little bit ago, and we'll look at it here in a moment in chapter 5. He did this while we were still his enemies. So, so much of Paul's emphasis in chapter 5 now is, if he did this while you were his enemy, what if you got to doubt now? Now you're his friend. Now you're his child. What could stand between you and him and a future of glory? And the answer is nothing except your own doubts. And that actually is nothing. Nothing, which he continues to declare to be gone. The only way to not be saved by Jesus is to refuse it. And of course, you're not going to do that. That would be foolishness. Yes? All right, so let's let's look at this text. It is so potent. I hope you can feel the energy that I've got from it. It is so pure, gospel in the Lutheran sense, the good Lutheran sense of the word. You can find chapter five on page 942 of your pew Bible, or if you brought your own along, that's always a great idea. And do remember that those three by five blank note cards in the pew and the pens there, they're there for you to use to take notes if you like. I know not everyone wants to believe this, and your will is kind of like, oh, i taking notes. I'm so tired. Like I promise you, if you will just make a couple of notes during the sermon over the course of two or three months, you will find you get so much more out of church. You will. It's, I promise you. It's not, it's not the gospel. The Bible doesn't even say that, but it, it is true. All right. So that's what that's there for. Chapter 5, verse 1 starts with the, the word therefore and since. That's pointing back to last week. That's pointing back to Paul proving from both Abraham and David that the Old Testament message is that God is going to save sinners. God is going to save sinners by making them not sinners anymore. That is, by forgiving their sins. And then this word righteousness or justification is the word that he uses to describe this. It is really a legal word. This is why it doesn't work in English so well. Very few of us spend much time in courtrooms, thank God. Yeah. Uh, but but so legal language is not really something we're used to. But justification is that moment in the court where the person who has had accusation brought against them, the plaintiff, has come against the defendant. That defendant is standing there, and the judge reads the verdict from the jury, innocent. I'm justified. That's justification at that moment. Now again, in the biblical story, the accuser, the plaintiff, is Satan. You are the defendant. You've got a lawyer named Jesus who also happens to be the judge, and there's no jury. That is the good news of him deciding you're justified. The devil's like, but look at the evidence. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, I got it right here. Since therefore we have been justified. Yes, chapter five, verse one, by faith. That means through faith. We spent a lot of time on this a couple weeks ago. That refers to two things. The faith of Jesus, meaning Jesus Christ, the man's actual belief in his father that his father would do good to him through him for all. So the faith is really Jesus' active faith on our behalf. But then also, it's not the only thing Paul talks about with faith. It is also the only way we can receive the promise. You can't do a promise someone else promises you. You can only passively believe them or not. And usually that believing or not will have nothing to do with you either it will have everything to do with how trustworthy they are so if a liar who you know tells lies says i swear it you're like i don't believe that and if someone who you know always follows through says i swear you go, oh well he never swears i'll believe that that's not you that's not active that's passive yes so we have been justified by the active faith of christ which you have received passively because of that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is that peace, both the end of warfare between us and God, and the peace of conscience that I mentioned before. Does that mean your conscience will never be plagued? No. It means that though you will always have a plagued conscience because the Holy Spirit has awakened you to understand your sin, when you hear about Jesus, it will alleviate your conscience every time. Whenever you hear that He is risen, Alleluia, and you remember that it is true, your conscience will feel lifted. You will have something to set against your sin, yes? And of course, as you come to the holy meal, you will find that not you walk away high up in the air, but you walk away with a bittersweet knowledge that indeed you are walking towards something better in the wounds of Christ, yes? Verse two, through him we also attained access by faith, same concept we're just talking about, into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So two things, standing in grace and rejoicing in hope. Let's just stick with standing in grace for a moment. I was at Payne's, I think it was last week, and I still feel like I didn't say it well enough in either service to emphasize that there is nothing you can do, nothing you will do, nothing you have to do to complete what Jesus has done for you. I want to insist that the gospel, the good news of Jesus is radical. It removes the demands of the law from you. You never have to be a good person again. You never have to try to show God what you can do. You never have to complete a good work. That doesn't mean you won't. But you never have to, because all that needs to be done is done already. And it is precisely because you need not do any more that you're in fact free to try. You no longer have to turn to your works and try to turn them into something you prove yourself with. You can just do them because they're good. Which again, I can go on a tangent here about how strange it is that we think good works are bad. Why would I want to do good works? You're gonna pay me for it? Like that that shows you our sin here, right? But the forgiveness of God in Christ standing in grace makes it so you can kind of look around and be like, wait, I don't I don't have to beat myself with a whip anymore to try to prove it. Oh wow, oh hey, that guy fell down. I'm gonna go help him. It does start to happen that way. The path then, the power here for you to grasp for yourself is that you stand in grace. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. There is now no condemnation for you who are in Jesus Christ. You stand not in works, but in grace. And standing in grace, you'll finally be free to walk in works without having to always have it be about you. And notice any good work you do for you, well, not so good actually then. Just selfishness and boasting. Second thing, hope in the glory of God. This is about the resurrection. This is about your knowledge that this world is fading away, but Christ is raised from the dead. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And because he will come again, he will raise you from the dead on that day. And this is your hope. That the struggle that you endure now by faith will give way to a day of no struggle where the faith will remain. Not only this, verse 3 but we rejoice in our sufferings. About the hardest thing in the Bible right there. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. This is not the only place where this kind of list is given in the Bible. They don't always follow the exact same order, but they do ultimately push the same idea which is that Christians don't shy away from suffering, nor do we let the fact that we suffer, and that means also your internal conscience, you know, the trial of feeling like you're not enough. We don't say, well, that's got to go away. Rather, we embrace it, knowing that the power of Jesus' resurrection is a promise that will bring us through it, and trusting that promise while continuing to suffer creates in us a character unlike any in the world, And that character is rooted in the hope of knowing that we can't get out of it, but Jesus has, and he's coming back, and we're already in him. And that hope is the antidote to shame. You follow that. The hope of the resurrection of Jesus is the antidote to your shame. We live in a society that is at once without honor and filled with shame. We have people that have no integrity, who do whatever they want, who make up whatever laws they want, who think they can be whatever they want to be, and they say, therefore, you can't tell me I'm shameful no matter what I've done. And yet, our people, all our people, not just you and me, but the people in America, we are, we are cowering in shame. We are dripping with shame. That's why they shout about, don't shame me. It's because they're filled with shame. So I know you've got shame in your life because it's just, it's in the water in America. And the antidote to your shame is not what you're going to do to make yourself better. The antidote to your shame is when you are in your shame, which is suffering. Remembering that Jesus Christ is sufficient to have already overcome your shame. And that character within you is a hope that antidotes, that kills, that destroys, that alleviates, that takes away that shame. So that standing in grace, you can know you stand in grace, and eventually the shame is just a lie, and you can call it a lie. It doesn't mean you're never going to find it again, but you can at least have the power of the new man within you to say, that's a lie. I don't have to believe that. I know my heart's telling it to me, but there's no reason for me to listen to my heart. My heart's deceptive, but Jesus is not. Huh? You follow me here, I hope. Yeah? Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay. Mm. God's love is not passionate Eros feeling. God's love is a positive disposition toward you, a decision to be committed toward you. And that His decision to be committed toward you is not just some symbolic idea. It is, in fact, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is a person of the Holy Trinity, as much God as Jesus is God and the Father is God, has been given to you, has been poured into you, now inhabits you as his holy temple, and the proof of that is that he is risen. Hallelujah! Even if you doubt, even if you struggle, even if you haven't been able to become the person you want to be, your belief that Jesus is risen is not something you did. It's something he did, and that is the Holy Spirit. So you can rest assured that God is alive inside of you. Now, don't start looking to your faith to prove it to yourself. Look to the word that is outside of you to prove it to you. Are you baptized? Yes. Well, then God has declared you innocent and clean. Chapter six is coming next week. We'll be very direct on baptism. Do you eat and drink the flesh of the son of man? Well, yes, you do. Well, then he's going to raise you up on the last day. Do you hope in that? Well, I don't have any other hope. Well, then therefore you hope in that. This means that the Holy Spirit is alive in you. So believe it. Embrace it. Tell yourself that. Know that you've been set apart from this dark world and all its despair and shame by a holy God who, while you were his enemy, decided to make you his temple. Trust it. And it does, it doesn't take everything away. I'm my knees hurt right now, but it's it 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 lifts. It lifts, it counterbalances, it fights back, it's light shining in the darkness all right chapter 6 or chap- chapter 5 verses 6 through 11 is just so clean it's just so pure i i almost don't want to talk about it cuz i feel like it just makes sense on its own and all i can do is is repeat it till you get bored with it where it's so clear while we were still weak at the right time christ died for the ungodly That word weakness there uh, isn't just kind of like weak in the knees, but it means incapable, right? Starving. It doesn't mean literally starving, but think of someone who is starving and can't lift their body because they have no energy anymore. That's the idea. Incompetent. The right time is a great word. There's one word, kairos. There's two types of time in the New Testament, kairos and kronos. You might remember kronos is a god of the Greek pantheon and so forth, but uh kairos uh is a very different way of thinking about time than what we americans tend to think of with the clock the clock is chronos you know tick 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 here he comes it's not i don't have enough chronos ever There's, it's always going away uh, there goes father time he's going to die a new baby comes but next year he's old father time again that's chronos kairos is just a reference to the harvest season so you spend your whole summer kind of planting the seed, watering the seed, weeding around the seed, and then, ooh, pick the corn. The right time. Yeah, that's Kairos. So at the right time, at the harvest, when it mattered, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you, the ungodly. That's that word lawlessness or godlessness. Uh, um, Asabea, do you remember that from chapter one? The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. That's this word here, Uh, asabeah. It means to not have piety. It means to not know God, right? And it is for those who do not know God that Christ died. And he goes in, in verse seven, it's a bit of a tangent. It's a logical point. This should make a lot of sense though. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person, one would even dare to die. I mean, can you? how many people, can you count them on your hands? How many people right now today, if they said, I have a deal with the authorities, someone has to take my death penalty and I'll be able to go free, would you do it? How many people can you think of you would actually exchange places with? There's a marvelous book called The Tale of Two Cities. I don't know if you've ever read or heard it. It's about the French Revolution and, and also what goes on in London. And the culmination of the story is a man who's in love with a woman who doesn't love him. She loves another man who, because of the French Revolution, though he's innocent, is declared that he must die. And they kind of have a similar look to them. And loving this woman more than life itself and knowing he can never be with her, he takes her lover's place and goes to the gallows. So it's a powerful, powerful story. But again, how many of us would actually ever do that? And and that's Paul's point in verse seven. None of us would really do this, maybe for a child, maybe, right? In a moment. Verse eight, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. We weren't even good. We would maybe die for someone who was good. But while we were those who missed the mark of goodness, God sends his own son into our flesh to take the burden of the law upon his shoulders to pay the debt and nail it to the cross in his own blood. Since therefore, verse nine, and because of this, we have now been justified by his blood. This is again, declared innocent by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So now he's getting at your current experience. Yes, yes. Because in your current experience as a Christian, you're going to struggle. You're going to face doubt. You're going to see things that make it seem like God's not in charge of the world. And Paul is saying, but he died for you when you were his enemy. So why would you think that what you see now would change that? No matter how bad it gets let me tell you one of the worst things I can imagine happening to me. Well, first off, being sawn in two happened to Isaiah. Scares me to death. Uh, but but I, I once visited Auschwitz. And Auschwitz is pretty small as a concentration camp. There's a much bigger one, Auschwitz II, where they really were, were just killing a lot of people once. Auschwitz was not, it was it wasn't set up to be the mass murder place. It was set up more to be a torture place. And there's a room there where there are three cells that are about as big as this pulpit, only like there's a roof, right? So imagine this pulpit as a room, like it ends back here right where I am. And it has, yeah, it's about this space and it goes up to here. And there's only one door and the door's on the ground and it's about this big. So you have to crawl in. And they would put three people in that room and leave them there so that they could not lie down. They could not sit down. There were too many in the space. They had to stand and then crumple on each other. And they would leave them there for days and days and days. Now, if I was in that situation, I think I'd be asking, God, where are you? Why have you done this to me? How could you let this happen? I ask those questions over spilling coffee. Right? So, the point is that in such a situation, let's let's pray to Jesus, that never comes to us. But in such and every situation where it appears to you that God is not for you, you can remember, you can tell yourself, wait, I was his enemy and he died for me. Why would this make me think he's abandoned me? He's not going to abandon you. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled. That's brought back to God by the death of his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And that is why seeing your struggles and your trials as gifts from God, as the discipline of a father to a son is incredibly important. When you have that thing go wrong, you say, why God? Rather than say, why God? Say, well, that must be God's grace somehow. If only for me to remember that it's God's grace somehow. That alone is God's grace. And then from there, you might just lower your eyes to see there's other people around that you're now unable to see because you couldn't see them if you were not suffering. It's, it's, it's a strange thing. It's like it's upside down, but it's not. It's right side up. The rest of the world's upside down. Yeah. So more than that, verse 11, we also rejoice in God. Rejoice, you can hear that. as We are comforted in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That means being brought back to him again. Right? To be unreconciled is to be divorced, to be divided. To be reconciled is to be brought back together. Now, certainly, Christianity talks about reconciliation not only as between you individually and God, but as between you and God and us. That our reconciliation is breaking down the dividing wall of hostility and malice that arises between people. But this is going to flow from the reconciliation of all humanity to God in Jesus. And the next section of the chapter is gonna go off in that direction to talk about how all mankind was divorced from God and now all mankind has been brought back to God. And both of these have happened in one person. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, oh wait, look, there's a dash there in the text, isn't there? Wouldn't you know he's going to go on an eight verse tangent before he finishes the sentence? So I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to go straight into verse 18, where he's going to pick up the thought again, all right? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Therefore, as by one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so, there's your final so, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, I mentioned the struggle that many, many people and indeed some Christians have with the theory of evolution and how important it is to them so that they're unwilling to believe what Genesis says about six-day creation, how there's morning and evening every single day and how God sets aside the seventh day so that we rest. And we have the seven-day week and like every culture to this day because he created it that way. But people struggle with that because they really like Darwin's idea from the Galapagos Islands. And so they're willing to believe all sorts of other stuff. What they miss... When they, say, when they say Genesis is just a symbolic story, they miss this point. They miss that death entered the world through Adam. Now think about this. How does evolution work? It's called survival of the fittest. It means the weak die, the strong survive. They pass on their traits, and that's what enables them to crawl out of the sea and become monkeys. I'm mocking them a little bit there. But survival of the fittest is observable in nature. It's absolutely true. There's no question that survival of the fittest takes place in nature. But the way that survival of the fittest makes the fit survive and the weak die is through death. And so if you want to say that man came about from the survival of the fittest, then you mean that death has existed for a long time before man. Now, Paul is here saying that death entered the world through one man and life entered the world through one man. The one man, Jesus, the one man, Adam. Now you got a problem. If you want to say that the first thing is just symbolic. If death entering the world through Adam is symbolic, guess what life is? It's just symbolic too now. Yeah? Now I'm going to just go on and say, look, believe what it actually says. There was one man. He was created on the sixth day and he rebelled against God. He rejected his law. He chose evil rather than good. And so... Sin came into the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men. It's inherited. It's not something you get to choose. You can say that's not fair, but actually it's the definition of fair. Your parents caught a disease that you have to catch too. There's no way around it. It's passed on genetically. But just as, back to verse 18 now, the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so also. One act of righteousness, it is finished on the cross, leads to justification. That's that special word that means vindication now. It's not the normal justification. Vindication and life for all men come from that one act on the cross. So if Adam's not fair, Jesus isn't fair. But the thing is, Adam is fair and so is Jesus. It's a complete justifying, a complete justifying, right? It makes it all right. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And then verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Same idea we started the chapter with. Idea has been working toward ever since he ended verse, uh, ended chapter three with this, but now another righteousness has come. Yes. And so I hopefully don't need to spend too much time repeating myself on that. But it's going to lead into chapter six, where he's going to ask, what's this look like? What does this do to us? Should we just keep on being evil? Or do we give ourselves back to the law? And his answer is no, not at all. Baptism changes all of that. We'll get there next week. But for this week, just relish this. It's so clear. He's not going to leave you nor forsake you. While you were at your worst, he chose you. And from there, he sent his greatest treasure to redeem and buy you back. So now, how much more that you are his, is he not going to see you through to the very end? And that itself, that message, is a power for peace in the conscience which is why I suggest you write it down and look at it again this week when you're feeling down. In the name of Jesus, amen.